Good morning. Good morning and happy Father's Day to all of our fathers who are here with us this morning. Thanks for coming to celebrate first here with the ultimate father of us all. And then later today, trusting with your families and with folks that are very meaningfully connected in your lives. It is a it's a privilege always in some of these moments to have the opportunity to honor moms and dads who play such an incredibly important role in the future of lives. And so uh, this morning is an intentional moment in our series of what we're studying here that we are here on Father's Day and we are studying the life of King David. And so that's not by accident, it's not by coincidence, it is, it is by design that this morning we're going to be turning our attention again to King David and uh, ministering to fathers. So we're going to take some time at the end of the service to minister to the fathers that are here, and so I want to prepare dads for that, to be able to listen in light of being able to receive. But let me, let me encourage us, uh, if you're new to the church or you're trying to figure out what this summer Bible jam thing is, is all about. You know, in the summer, uh, we just get a break from our routines, don't we? We get a little bit different pace. Kids aren't in school. Maybe we're going on vacation. Maybe we're making room in life for some different activities. Well, we, we have sought to seize that opportunity every summer in the last several years to rekindle our affection for God's word. Right? I know it may be a sad thing, but it is just a reality that, that, that that needs to happen, right? This becomes a book that, boy, years ago we were reading it, we were faithful to it, and then life just started happening, and, and we started getting familiar with some of these principles and ideas from God, and we just, we just began to neglect this more and more and more. And then we started living in a digital age and reading an analog book, and it's just slow moving and it doesn't engage us. And does yours come with pictures? No, mine neither. Um, and so, you know, we don't like, it doesn't operate like Google and you just can't click on an image with three words underneath it and that's all you need to worry about. You got to actually work a little bit to read it and let it construct something in your heart. And so it's very easy, unfortunately, in our environment to fall out of love with this book. So we're, we're doing these series every summer to, to rekindle the opportunity for us just to fall deeply in love with God's word and to experience God through the, his nearness through his word. So every summer we, we've sought to not only just teach from the Bible, we always do that, but, but to sort of take you behind the scenes to help you understand how better to enjoy reading your Bible and so we've done that in a variety of ways over the years. This year, we are focusing on character studies in Scripture. And one of the points I want to make today, and I know Evan was making this point as well last week, is God has uniquely chosen to write his story and to write a revelation of himself into the lives of human beings. And so when we read the characters in the Bible, we are reading a revelation of what God wants us to know about ourselves, about the world that we live in, about who he is and how he is. And we get that by just following the storylines of God choosing to interact with people. And so that's why we're doing a, a character study. And we've started last week, our first character that we're going to sit down and get to know a little bit is, is King David from the Old Testament. 
And Evan started us last week looking at this, this man after God's own heart. And this week we're going to, we're only spending three weeks in David's life, so it's a lot to try and cover. But this week we're going to go move from a man after God's own heart to learning about a man of clay feet. And that, that's an idea that comes from scripture, this awareness that there's a vulnerability to the human condition. There is inherent weakness in being a human being, that at some point you're going to experience that and I'm going to experience that. Probably most of us would say, yeah, on a daily basis, right? But, you know, there's something about the way we read the Bible, the way we grow up learning these stories from the Bible and the way we get to know these characters I could probably liken it to somewhat of a, you know, being a sports guy on the weekend. There's a lot of things going on. And then you got that, that Sunday evening sports program. It's kind of like a wrap up, you know, it's kind of like 30 minutes of whatever happened in sports the whole weekend, right? And there's, it's like a fast moving highlight reel. And if you, you weren't familiar with the sports, you'd think that, you know, football was just one touchdown after another, Right? Because that's all you see. It's right. This, this, a long run for a touchdown, an interception for a touchdown. I mean, that's, well, that's all they're showing you in that quick little reel. Or, or maybe if you're a golfer, you know, there's this incredible shot where, you know, this guy hit the ball a gazillion miles away, an inch from the hole. And, and then there's another shot where he bounced it off a tree and did something amazing. And he chipped into the hole from a sand trap. Oh, and then you compare your golf game to that. It's like, you know, apart from hitting the tree, I don't know anything about most of the rest of it. Well, you can read the Bible that way, right? You get these highlight reel moments of, of Abraham who followed God by faith and he left everything and went to a land where he didn't even know where he was going. You know, is that the way you're living? You're following God that way, you know? Uh, sometimes, yeah. A lot of times, no. Or Moses who you know, could take on Pharaoh. He had the courage to face the biggest opposition in his life. And then he led a million plus people out into the wilderness, trusting God in amazing ways, gets to the Red Sea, slams his stick down, parts the Red Sea. Come on, Christian, live it, baby. And then last week, you know, we're learning about David, this boy who doesn't put on the armor to go face Goliath. He just walks out in faith, trusting in God to show up and takes this giant down who was mocking the people of God. Right, so this, this is the highlight reel, right? And the Bible is very much a highlight reel. It's only selectively showing us certain things. But, but what it expects you to understand is that it's telling the story of people, human beings like you and me. And in a lot of ways, Abraham was like you and me. Moses was like you and me. And David was like you and me. He was a man of clay feet. He had vulnerabilities. He had weaknesses. He had temptations. He had sins. He lived in a fallen world that had to be managed. Well, this is what we encounter. Look at this first quote here. Let me give you a little tip of a resource Here's a quote from a guy named Alfred Edersheim, his book, The History of the Old Testament. It 
It's a big, cumbersome book. This is not the book you pick up and read from cover to cover. It's a great reference book, though, right? So little tips along the way of enjoying your Bible. Uh, Anything from Alfred Edersheim is worth getting. Uh, He's a tremendously insightful historian and what he brings to the passages of scripture to give you a better idea of, of what's life like in these settings, what's really going on. Now, along the way, as you are a Bible reader, uh, you need to accumulate tools so that you can enjoy your Bible reading and dig in a bit. This is a great tool to have. Uh, it's an old book. He's a, he's a writer from the 1800s. So his stuff is old. You can get it. You probably get a Kindle version of this for a couple of bucks. You might pay 10 bucks for this big, thick book here. But if you're going to venture into the Old Testament, you need stuff like this. Otherwise, you just kind of jump into spaces and you don't have a lot of good information with you to kind of fully grasp all that's going on. So helpful resource if you want to venture into the Old Testament and read there. But here's an insight into this highlight real condition. He says, there is one marked peculiarity about the history of the most prominent Bible personages of which the humbling lesson should sink deep into our hearts as we follow their onward and upward progress, they seem at times almost to pass beyond our reach as if they had not been compassed with the same infirmities as we and their life of faith were so far removed as scarcely to serve as an example to us. Such thoughts are terribly rebuked by the history of their sudden falls which shed a lurid light on the night side of their character, showing us also, on the one hand, through what inward struggles they must have passed, and on the other, how divine grace alone had supported and given them the victory in their many untold contests. But more than that, we find this specially exhibited just as these heroes of faith attain, so to speak, the spiritual climax of their life. As if the more clearly to set it forth from the eminence which they had reached, accordingly, the climax of their history often also marks the commencement of their decline. Right? King David is going to serve quite an illustration of that reality. A life that seems to be lived at such a level of inspiration and uniqueness and love and affection for God. Descriptions about his life that would leave us kind of feeling like, well, well that, that's not me. I know, I know what I was all about last week and I don't see me in his pages. Well, here's what's happening. And I love the way he described that. The, the night side of their character their struggles, and on the other side, divine grace emerging. And, and this is what God is doing. And when you read the scriptures, you want to see both. If, if God is, is an artist who's painting a picture that you and I are going to see something and go, wow, look at that. Well, he, he's going to pick up canvas, and he's going to begin to paint, and things are going to take shape. But that canvas that he picks up, in our story, he, he's going to pick up the canvas of a man named David. That canvas was made of certain stuff. It had certain characteristics to it. It had, it had qualities in it, and not all of them were heroic qualities. We're going to get introduced to today to David's less than heroic qualities. How many of you guys feel like you have less than heroic qualities? 
And you wonder, what on earth was God doing ever being attracted to me? I wonder that. And if you look at King David's life and what's about to happen with him, you, you will wonder that about him as well. But, but God is displaying something about his own nature by picking up that kind of canvas and beginning to paint his divine grace onto that. And when you open the pages of Scripture, that's what you're reading all over the place. The God who is revealing himself against the backdrop of humanity. Well, these are real people with real lives. And one of the things we're trying to capture in this series is is to let us see the reality of their humanity. You know, if we're not careful, we, we dehumanize the Bible and we turn it into clever sayings, bits and pieces of information, and we exchange that with one another. It's kind of like there's little words that you say to me that trigger principles. And so you're having a struggle in X, Y, Z. Oh, you said Y, and a principle pops to mind. And in my conversation with you, I slap that principle on your situation. And then you come around later and you say something else about an issue that you're having in life, and poof, a principle pops to mind. I slap that principle on that situation. How many, how many guys have been a Christian long enough to to have that done to you in an, in an annoying way, right? You're walking through something that feels like lava running downhill slowly. There's, there's, you can't stop it. It's not, it's not obeying anything. It's just burning everything in its path. And then somebody walks up to you in that moment, says, well, you just need to blank. Or you just need to believe blank. And just in one sentence, they have made your life so simple It's like, what kind of an idiot are you that you just didn't take that one line and apply it to your situation? For you, it feels like, no, 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 you don't understand. The universe is spinning backwards, pal. And he's like, well, you just need to believe. Uh, You know, the Bible's not written that way because there's human beings in the Bible. And principles work out really nice and nifty until human beings try to put them on. And then they get slow and cumbersome and messy, right? David Powelson great book I've been reading recently about sanctification. He kind of takes issue with these just abstract principles that lack humanity. He says this. He says, you know, we hear no conversations like when we do that. We feel no emotions. We watch no particular struggle unfold. These truths and exhortations, wise truths, helpful exhortations, have been taken out of context. As propositions, they've been stripped of the names and the places and the experiences, the failures, successes, dramatic actions, and vivid metaphors that clothe most biblical revelation. We need to hear and take to heart other people's stories, right? like, like David's story. We need many different wisdoms to illumine the different paths of life. The sort of just do this or, or just believe that formulas never meet the need. He goes on and says, when you look closely at people's lives, like, like King David, how do they actually change? Where, where did they get stuck? What does change and, and what doesn't change? What is the process like? What are the typical ups and downs? When we look back into the stories and details of Scripture... When we look out in the variety of life stories and pastoral experiences, we see a manyness that defies reductionism, a pointedness that defies tidy abstraction. 
And that's what we're going to see today as we read from David's life. Look in 2 Samuel. We're going to look at chapter 11, but let me back up just a hair to get a, a better context of David's life was one of one success after another. This guy was accomplishing things in the kingdom of God. He was overcoming enemies, overthrowing opposition. He was on the move, right? And you kind of get that at the end of chapter 10, verse 16. Hadadazar sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Helam with Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadadazar, in their, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed the Assyrians, the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen, and wounded Shobach, the commander of their army, so that he died there. When all the kings who were servants of Hadadazar saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. Right? This, is, this is one story after another. One person after another is going to be overthrown by David and his army. And he will now reign over them and they will become subject to the reign of King David. So one success after another. And then we get to chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam? the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. She had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab. This is his general. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a, a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow and I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next and David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, 
He went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew they were valiant men. And the men of the city came out, fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David, among them, among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Skip to verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Back up into the beginning of this story. This military man with his setting of one great triumph over another, this chapter starts interestingly. It starts by telling us it's time to go to battle. It's the time when kings go off to war and it installs this little but phrase. But David remained in Jerusalem. Right, so this first verse, if I'm reading this, it, it, it arises my curiosity. Why is the Bible telling me this story this way? It, it's pointing that David did something peculiar here. The Bible's trying to make me see it. David, as king, should be leading his people into battle. But he stayed back. He sent the general, he sent the warriors, he sent his people to engage the battle, but he stayed back. And then verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose. It happened, you know? Just a random moment. Is it just a random moment? Just, you know, stuff happens. Isn't there a phrase like that? Stuff happens, right? I mean... This could happen to anybody. David has this situation arise, just boom, out of nowhere, right? All right, well, let's, let's learn something from David's life. Was this situation really out of nowhere? Was this a real chance, could have happened to anybody moment? Or is it connected to some other things? Is this moment a moment that was constructed by David. Oh yeah, it happened. It, it happened, but should you have ever been in the place where it happened, David? And how'd you get there, man? Well, there's a lot of interesting stuff here, right? If you fast forward a little bit to verse 10 there, remember Uriah's explanation? It's an interesting insight game from this passage. When Uriah is brought back from battle and leaves all the folks who are still encamped and open fields, ready to face warfare, and he comes back to the city, he displays the attitude that should have been in King David's heart. Uriah comes back and is, is given access to the comforts of Jerusalem, to the pleasures that are there, including being with his wife. But what's in his heart is a loyalty and a responsibility to those that he is a co-warrior with who are still in battle. 
And he cannot disengage them in order to pursue his own personal pleasures. If that's true of Uriah, ought not that have been true of the king who led everybody into battle? Oh, yeah, except that usually the kings go off to war at this time, but David didn't. Huh. Curious, isn't it? That he didn't? Have you ever found yourself in situations like this where suddenly some fall has taken place, some bad decision has been made, something with severe future repercussions has come into your life, this, this moment, this monumental moment? If you back up a bit from that, you, you might find that it didn't just happen. Now, here's a great insight. Learn from Uriah. I think I wrote it in your outline there. Had David not ignored his duty and his calling and his routine responsibilities, he would have spared himself this moment of temptation. You know, don't overlook being faithful in the small things. Because what you and I don't know, we, we just know we're called to obey, we're called to trust God, we're called to walk with him. That, that's kind of all we know we're supposed to do. What we don't know is when I take this step of obedience and this small step of responsibility, and I just do the little thing that God has made me responsible for, that I am walking a path away from this thing over here. And I don't even know that because I'm not called to know everything. But if David is just responsible, if he's just leading his troops into battle, if he's just loyal to the people that he's called to, if he's just taking up his responsibility to be out there with his troops, inspiring them into battle, if that's where he is, he's not in Jerusalem, getting up off of his couch, staring out at some woman bathing. He wouldn't have even been there. That's some lessons to learn, right? There are little steps of faithfulness that you and I are going to take that we have no idea how they are guarding us from moments like these. Like we were doing this Bible jam thing, right? You get this opportunity to interact with the Bible on a daily basis, right? Small thing, isn't it? Isn't it easy for you to give yourself permission not to do that? I'm really pressed. I don't have time. There's other things going on. It's just small thing. It's not going to overturn something giant. It doesn't feel like it is. But, but who's to say that just something I read at a moment of interaction with God, it, it, it softens my heart in some way. It interacts with me. It puts faith in me to take a step I never would have taken without that Bible verse being made alive by the Holy Spirit coming to me. Or some conviction that just a simple, I just picked my Bible up and read it for 20 minutes. That, that's all I did. Yeah, but that did something that you had no idea what it was going to do. And that protected you from that. Maybe it's something just as simple as, you know, cleaning your house. Isn't there a lot of things you'd rather do than clean your house? But maybe just that simple act of responsibility before God, of being a steward of, of that which God has given you, and you just take the step of occupying your time by just cleaning your house. Or maybe a young person, maybe just doing your homework 
instead of drifting off into uh, an endless Facebook barrage or just getting curious about what else is on the internet. I wonder what else I can see here. If I click on that, ah, oh, that's, that's curious. Oh, I didn't know there was a link to that. I wonder what that's about. I mean, in the internet, just endless curiosity. Just one click after another. And next thing you know, you're way over here clicking on a page that you never should have clicked on that has drawn you into something that has set you on fire. Did you ever think that if you'd have just cleaned your house instead <laughs> or done your homework instead that you wouldn't be there? Right? Life's got these little moments in it. Don't miss this little moment. David, if you're just doing what you should have been doing, you're not in this place, man. But you connived and manipulated and moved some things around. And, and it happened, verse 2. It happened. Well, you know, we know something about human behavior. We're humans. We know something about what the Bible teaches about our humanity. So, quite honestly, it, it happened, but it happened according to the, let me say it this way, the laws of our existence. It happened predictably according to the laws of our existence, right? You know, this isn't very heavy, but if I let go of this, what's going to happen? Hey, yeah, you sure of that? Absolutely sure, right? So you can predict certain things in life because there are laws that inform you of what's going to happen. That's the law of gravity. It was 9.81 meters per second squared. That's the rate at which something falls to the ground. I have to use my nerdism sometimes. (laughs) There are predictable things that God has made us aware of in this world. The Bible informs us of some of these laws, if you will. Laws of life in a fallen world. Laws of your existence. You don't get to cheat these. You can sing, I believe I can fly all you want. But if you climb to the top of this building and jump off of it, I promise you, you're going to believe in gravity like you've never believed in gravity in just a moment. Because that law is going to kick in. So you can believe, David, you can believe some great things, but there's, there's some principles of laws that God has said about our existence that they are true whether you like them, understand them, or respect them or not, right? Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. This is a law of reality. I say, Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, you just got introduced to a law. Did you know your flesh has desires? See, if my flesh was kind of like just, you know, a coffee table, I, mean, I got no problem with it. I just pick it up and move it, set things on it because it doesn't want anything. But that's not my flesh. My flesh has desire capacity in it. So it, it wants stuff. It's, it's got an agenda to it. And guess what? Can I just break this news to you? You can't destroy that. There's no switch that you can turn that makes your flesh go from desiring to no desire. This is a secret Bible passage somewhere that if you decode it, your flesh will go from desires to no desires. No, no, no. That's, that's called death and getting a glorified body. That's how you get that, by the way. So if you ever think you're going to shut off the very desires that are in your flesh, yeah, you will one day when you're dead and God gives you a new body that completely is in harmony with him. 
Until that day, you're going to manage this verse. This verse will be part of your story for the rest of your life. Your flesh has desires, and the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Right? That's a law. That's a reality. That will be true today and tomorrow and next month and one second before you draw your last breath. That is going to be true. If you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. King David Was, was this predictable? Yeah. Because David's a man like us. And so I get, I get weakness. I get temptation. I get something desiring inside of me, something that I really don't want, but yet there's still this desire there. Right? That, that's got to get managed. And then the Bible turns around and gives a little bit of a play-by-play, right? These are realities. These realities are true, whether you've read your Bible very much or not. They're still true. If you're reading this for the first time, you're going, oh, wow, that explains a lot. See, that just tells you why reading the Bible is helpful. Because it's trying to kind of clue us into these things. James chapter 1, verse 13. Here's what happened from the rooftop of King David's palace. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. I think that death can go in a bunch of categories of application. In this instance, it, 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 was, it was certainly the death of Uriah. It brought forth a murderous death, but it was a death of a lot of things for King David and, and for the glory of God's name being known. There was death. All right, so if, if you and I are, are learning from this story, and this story is here for us to learn from this story, I want to watch the play-by-play unfold here, right? Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, right? So that's the first thing. Am Am I paying attention to there is this law, this existence inside of me that wants certain things, has a capacity to want things, to want things that are sinful. And when that kicks in, and turns on, it has a luring power, a luring power to it, right? You guys are South Louisiana fishermen. You know what a lure is all about, right? It's about something that looks like something it's not. So convincingly that you just relax and eat it. Well, that's what this is doing. So it's enticing. It's reaching into that desire category inside of me, and it's, it's luring me towards something then it's going to give birth to sin. It's not sin yet, it's temptation right now. But it's eventually going to give birth to sin. And then there's, there's another maturing and graduating beyond that. That sin is going to be an activity. That sin's going to be an engagement, a decision that I make. 
something out of bounds for the glory of God. But the story's not over yet. Because that sin, when it begins to operate and have its way, it's going to bring forth death. Now, the lure isn't telling you that, is it? You know, the bloop, the little hook and the fish lure comes down. It, it doesn't have like a sign over it in fish language, eat and die. You know, it, it doesn't say that. Enjoy right up to the moment that it's death. But that is what's being advertised for us. And this Bible verse is, is telling us that. So if, if I'm King David... I got to suspect if he's a real man, the moment to deal with the enticing fleshly desire in him wasn't when you were standing on the rooftop watching a naked woman. I got to believe there was some time before that, that it would have been very wise, David, for you to have been dealing with that desire inside of you. So much so that wisdom would have told you, dude, You don't need to be staying home unsupervised. If he wants to win this battle, you know, the moment isn't when he goes and gets Bathsheba and has him brought to his home and he's in bed with her and then he's going to decide to fight the battle, to resist and make a good godly decision. David, if you want to win, knowing what you're made of, The day you win the battle is when everybody else goes off to war, you go off with them. You don't put yourself in a place where it's going to be you one-on-one with your cravings and desires because, buddy, you will lose. The great sadness of David, I would suspect, if we could have a conversation with him, is he either ignored that reality or he didn't take the time to learn himself very well. This is, where, this is where the wheels come off of way too many Christians, especially men, because you, you just, it's, you're trying to fight the battle way too late in the game. There's way too many moving parts now. You're traveling too fast. Yes, hit the brakes, but you're too close to the edge of the cliff. There's a time to press the brakes. It was way back there. And to be wise in such a way that would have guarded you from this moment ever overtaking you. Right, that's in his story. Now, let me just highlight two things here. There's a couple things you can, you can take with you to fight this battle earlier on. Two things I see in David's life here that, that are needed for this progression of sin to take place, for, for enticement to turn into sin, to turn into death. It, it kind of needs some ingredients to help that growth take place. Right, two of them that are here are darkness and deception. And it's true for David, but it's true for us as well. What's true for David is David had a dark place in his life where he did dark things. And that, I don't think, gets invented in this moment. I think this was a struggle for this guy. I can't, I can't possibly imagine that the storyline is the man never had a lust problem, never had a womanizing problem, First time it comes along, he goes and gets some other man's wife, sleeps with her, and then has her husband killed to cover. This first time he's ever had an issue like this. Hey, are you believing that? Are you human? Is that how your sin operates? 
I think he had a runway before he got here. And he had things stashed in dark places, places that he didn't bring into the light. There was a dimension of David's life that wasn't lived in the light. And this was a dimension. And so right now, this is, this is why we landed on Father's Day. Right now, do you, have a, do you have a dark room in your life? A little place you keep stashed? Things that you don't bring up, you don't talk about, you don't reveal, you aren't honest about to other people. They don't come out into the light. See, first you become self-deceived, then you begin to deceive others. Because the self-deception is, well, nobody really needs to know this. If it's worth hiding, it definitely needs to be worth telling. Because it's a lure. What it's doing in the dark is lying to you and deceiving you and tricking you into thinking you're managing this thing. If you've put anything in the dark, because the Bible calls us to live in the light, right? We walk in the light. We have fellowship with one another. But if you put things in the dark, there's a reason why you're putting it in the dark. Why are you putting that in the dark? Why are you keeping that quiet? Why is that not being talked about? Why have you not gone and confessed that to somebody? Why have you not revealed that to your wife or to somebody near to you appropriately? Why has that not happened? Because the flesh has desires. It wants something. And if you bring it out into the light, party over. You can't pull the trigger on that anymore. You can't do that anymore. So listen, if you, if you want to avoid this day in David's life, live in the light. Choose to live your life in the light. Don't create dark spaces in your life. Listen, I, I sat on this moment with men in tears as they've described where they are now and the darkness that they kept this thing alive by hiding it and hiding it. And now it's destroying so much of their life. It, it makes me afraid of the dark for my own soul. There's probably more information than you want to know, but I don't, I don't even use the bathroom in my house and lock the door. I don't want any dark spaces in my life. I don't ever want the, what are you doing in there? Open the door and come on in. <laughs> right? Well, you know, why do you do something like that? Well, because I'm a, I'm a man. I'm a human being. I, 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 know what, I know what this thing is made of. I don't trust it. And if you keep dark places, you create an environment where that stuff can grow. And then you begin to do the second thing. You, you begin to deceive. And you begin to be comfortable with deception, misleading people. I mean, David's got one lie after another going here, isn't he? No, no, you guys go on ahead. I'm going to catch up. I got some paperwork here. <laughs> Sharpening some swords, but I'll be with you guys shortly. You guys go on ahead. You're going to do great. That's a lie. You're not coming. He deceived people. He, he built loyalties into his life. The people that were around him, they had no problem going to get that woman for David. Makes me wonder if that wasn't the first time. 
But see, when you create dark spaces and you practice deception, you surround yourself with people who will go along. And that's what he did, especially if he got power like David had power. Then he lies. He creates this lie scenario to have Uriah brought back to him. Then he lies to Uriah. And he creates a scenario hoping to play into the vulnerabilities of this man's, his flesh, that he'll sleep with his wife while he's here and I can just pass that baby on to him. But this man is lying upon lying upon lying. And then he goes silent about it for about a year. When Nathan the prophet, we'll see in a second, shows up and points out, David, you are the man. And then he's going to reveal it. Which, praise God, that happens at some level. Okay, can I just invite a question for you? You know, are you comfortable deceiving people? At whatever level. It, does, it can be a very small, minor level. Do you, do you ever lie about, you know, you got in the car and drove off somewhere. Came back, your wife said, where'd you go? And you, and you don't tell her exactly where you went. What are you doing? Why are you doing that? What are you allowing to operate in your soul when you say it's okay for you to shade things and just kind of make them a little different? Do you, do you understand the nature of the universe you live in? It's got gravity in it. If you decide to just drop that thing out the window, you are going to splatter on the ground. It's a law. And so if you just invite deception in at a little level and you get okay with it at a little level. Listen, David didn't arrive here overnight. Told little lies and little lies and got comfortable telling bigger and bigger and bigger ones. And so will you and me. We'll do the same thing. You want to to learn whether you're operating right now in great deception? There's something going on in your life that somebody, your wife, somebody close to you, is going to have to come and accuse you. And then going to have to make you defensive and you're going to attack them and they're going to overcome it. And finally you're going to reveal it. And then you're going to say, okay, I've come clean about that. If there's anything in your life that that is that way and you have not come clean about it, every day you live a lie. You are deceiving people every day. You're not just deceiving people when they come and confront you on it and you say, no, 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 I never did. I wouldn't, no, no, no. You are lying every day that you don't bring that into the light and you keep it in the dark. Every day is a lie. And he lived quite a few days living in a lie. Alfred Edersheim says a year had passed since David's terrible fall. The child of his sin had been born and all this time God was silent. Yet a dark cloud on a summer's day hung this divine sentence over him. But the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of Jehovah. Soon it would burst in a storm of judgment. And all this time Was David's conscience quiet? The man whom God had so exalted, who had had such fellowship with him, had sunk so low. He who was to restore piety in Israel had given such occasion to the enemy to blaspheme. The man who, when his own life was in danger, would not put forth his hand to rid himself of his enemy, had sent into pitiless death his own faithful soldier to cover his guilt and gratify his lust. Is this confusing or what? 
This man has had some deep convictions in principle that he's been living his life by. Was it possible to sink from loftier height or into lower depth? His conscience could not be, and it was not silent. What untold agonies he suffered while he covered up his sin, he himself has told us in the 32nd Psalm. Right, you've got some assignments to read this week, but if you read from some of the Psalms that accompany this period of David's life that he is writing them, right, Psalm, so Psalm 38, he says, Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin for my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. Psalm 32 verse 3 he says for when I kept Silent, right? His daily deception instead of revealing things. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And David, why didn't you go run to Nathan and say, Nathan, I've got to tell you what I've done didn't it's a powerful deception isn't it but God in his mercy doesn't let David stay there so this is the grace of God right here's the human canvas the human canvas you have is a guy who is hiding his sin it's been a year he's had a chance to come clean but in and of himself he is not coming clean and the grace of God comes to find that man dressed in a human being named Nathan Nathan is going to say some difficult things to David, but Nathan is God's grace coming to this man so that what you just heard described in the Psalms can get alleviated. David, you can get this heavy hand and weight off of you. Go on in your life. Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent... Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now, there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who's done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are that man. 
And thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your arms, gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. This is an interesting moment here. It's an interesting moment against the backdrop of the culture that you and I live in. David is outraged. The anger. How could someone have done something like this? If if David could send a tweet, it would have a hashtag in front of it. He'd be trashing this guy. He'd be hashtagging this dude. But if David's sins were known today... He'd be getting hashtagged, wouldn't he? Big time. I mean, the dude is classic. He's a classic problem today. He's a person of power, of wealth, of authority, of influence in people's lives. He's a womanizer. He's taken advantage of women. He's put another man to death. Right? This guy is way ahead of all the other people that are being hashtagged today. Let me just make a comment, though, here, because sitting in the bleachers watching the world hashtag itself to death has been interesting to watch because it's almost like, you know, I'm watching life being done and curiously watching it play out. It's like all this began to arise, and my thought kind of went like this. Hmm, look at that. The world discovered morals. How novel. Somebody actually did something that somebody else rose up against and said, that's wrong. Now that's wrong. Right there. That thing right there. Hashtag, hashtag, that's wrong. I don't know if you noticed, but that's wrong. You know, what's interesting though is he didn't call a bunch of other things wrong. You have an interesting definition for what's wrong and what riles you and what you get really angry about. See, the Christians have been getting angry about all kinds of moral issues through the years. And we were intolerant, judgmental. Now, all of a sudden, it's trendy to be judgmental. Right? Has anybody heard an ounce of tolerance offered to Matt Lauer, Bill Cosby? Who's a really bad? The Weinstein, Harvey Weinstein? Has anybody heard anybody speak about tolerance and mercy in the same sentence with those human beings? 
I only hear judgment. That's all I hear. As a matter of fact, I saw an interview where a woman was interviewing somebody who worked with Matt Lauer, and she began to paint a different image of Matt Lauer. as oh, This was totally surprising. I, I never knew that. And I don't think, and it was a much nicer image. That interviewer cut her off in a second. It's like, no, 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 no. You're not allowed to say anything good about this guy. This guy is under judgment. So all of a sudden, the world's discovered that there are things that you can do wrong that should be judged. Is that what you guys are saying? You sure you want to say that? Because, you know, you, you might want to read Romans chapter 2. It says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself? That you will escape the judgment of God? See, what this verse is saying is the moment you have the capacity to say, that's wrong, eh, 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 and heaven warning lights go off everywhere. Because you have just acknowledged the ability to say there is a right then, isn't there? And human being, you will be held accountable to that which is right. And not just the Harvey Weinsteins, the people whose sins are in different categories. See, Harvey Weinstein violated your standards, but humanity's sins violate God's, and he's the one who is judging. But you just demonstrated, the world has demonstrated that judgment is the right response to certain things, so much so that it doesn't make any room for anything else. I've yet to hear anybody say anything redemptive or that there's any hope for any of these people in the future. It's just judgment, 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 judgment. God shows up in David's life very, very differently. The man whose hashtag is as bad as anybody's, right? You get a hashtag David over this? I'm not aware of any of these people who have been hashtagged in the news of killing the people who were involved so that they could get at somebody's woman. David did. And then this is how God in his character, right? This is the character of God on display. This is where you're reading this story, but you're encountering God. You're looking at something David did that was horrific, but you're going to taste God as you read this story. That's why we study these characters. In 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Isn't that interesting? You committed adultery with Bathsheba, You got people to cover for you. You murdered Uriah, but you sinned against the Lord? Ultimately, all sin is against God. It's it's not just waiting for your hashtag mood to kick in. Say, oh, yeah, I don't like that either. Yeah, that's on my list. I have a short list. There's not a lot of things on my list, but that's on my list, and you did it. Okay, well, God's got a list. 
And it doesn't really matter what your list is. His list matters. And these sins were ultimately against God. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. The, the Lord did what? The, the Lord has put away? What, what, what do you mean? He's put, a, put away? Where did he put it? Did, did he... You just have a pleasant mood moment and he swept it under the carpet? Is there some giant carpet somewhere where God's been sweeping people's sins underneath carpet? There's just, I mean, it's enormous. It's like a landfill. God's just, oh, you sin. So this is, the, this is how the world wants to deal with forgiveness, which, by the way, is not even in the conversation for Harvey Weinstein. But for everybody else who's interested in forgiveness, there must be a magic carpet somewhere. That God just sweeps it under and he just chooses to forget about it. Is that what happens? No, no, right here. You get a narration right here of what the Lord put your sin away. He did what? He put it somewhere. Where, where did he put David's sin? Well, Isaiah 53. The prophet Isaiah speaks about the one day coming suffering servant some 750 years before Christ came. He reveals this suffering servant was where God was going to put David's sin. Isaiah 53 verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. David, yours and mine. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Careful who you hashtag, right? We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Lord, where did you put David's sin? I put it on him. I put it on my son. David, what you did was horrible. But you will not die because I'm going to place your sin on my son and I will judge him. He, though, will die in your place. See, what God does in this story is he picks up a canvas named David. A lot of things to like about David, but some dark things in David as well. And God begins to paint a revelation of himself. And we learn about the depravity of the human condition. And we get that. But this story doesn't end featuring depravity. This story ends featuring the grace of God that gets displayed. The man who didn't deserve to have a future gets a future. Because the grace of God steps into David's life. 
and he does not face the death that the Son of God would face in his place. Eric, let me ask you to go ahead and come back up here. All right, it's Father's Day. And I wrestled with this because this, this doesn't feel like a Father's Day, we're going to give you a flower or something and send you on your way <laughs> moment, does it? But, you know, this, this, is, this is the household of God, and this is a pulpit, and if I could think of something to give men, that would be a gift to you in your life. I would want to give you a gift that made you avoid ever sitting in my office across my desk, sounding like King David, having lived under the collapse of decisions and costly destruction and trying to crawl your way back to the surface, if you even believe that's possible. So I thought it'd be a little better than giving you a flower to give you an opportunity to receive something from this message as men, as fathers in particular. So here's what I want you to do. I'm I'm, I'm not going to call anybody forward, but in your hearts, I'm going to need you to, to come forward to God. So can we just bow our heads? You can stay seated. Just, just bow our heads. Listen for the Holy Spirit who's in our midst this morning. I'm sure David was like us, living a busy life with a lot of categories and much to do. Things just happen. They pile up. We don't deal with them. And then we're left trying to sort through, why does life feel the way it does? Why is this so heavy? Why does God seem so distant? Well, might it be that there are some issues, some decisions that you've made that you have sought to move on from, but you have not moved on from them because you have not dealt with them. This morning, God has given you a gift. He has sent a Nathan to you to stand in your life and say, you, you are the man. You are the David in your own story. And in God's grace and his great love, he arranged for you to be here this morning and for this message to be spoken. so that you might respond to him. And the first thing you need to do is to take some ownership. Is, is there anything for you to own? Have you, have you done something? Decided something? Practiced something? Kept it in the dark? Been deceptive about it? And this morning, God is wanting you to own it. 
feels horrible to let the truth sink in in some of these areas like, like arrows that go deep. We hate that we have failed this way. Hate it. But there's got to come a moment where like David, we stand and we say, Lord, against you have I sinned. So if that's true of you, the first place you've got to start right now is to stare God into the face and say, Lord, against you have I sinned. Maybe you're here this morning and just became aware that there are dark places, dark rooms, places where you keep things that are not in the light Deception that is covering things up. You have created an environment that is healthy for sin. It's dark and it's deception. And God is bringing you wisdom from David's life. That this morning you might confess that to him. Lord, I've, I've tolerated dark places where I have kept things hidden. I have not been honest before others. I have not lived in the light. Lord, I confess that this morning. It is painful to own these realities. It is necessary. Because believe it or not, God wants you to be able to move on. He did not send his son so that sin would have its last word. He sent his son that grace and mercy would triumph over our sin. David said in Psalm 32, blessed, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I was silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Lord, I I recognize we have taken a large piece of David's life and condensed it into an hour. And that men in this room are in different places in this journey. But God, I just pray every man who's here would own where he is. 
whether it's just beginning to be enticed by the laws of the flesh, the lures, or maybe for some it's living on the other side of deep regret and crushing guilt. Lord, you have saved us that you might bless us. Blessed is the man who owns his need for forgiveness and receives that forgiveness. Blessed is the man. Lord, bless some men here this morning. Bless them with owning where they are, not hiding, not being in the dark. Lord, bless them right now. God, bless them with the courage to say, it's me. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm coming into the light. I'm, I'm going I'm to have a conversation with the people I need to have a conversation with in the coming days. I, I'm, this is no longer going to be hidden. God, bless them with a willingness that just this morning, they were not willing, but they are willing now. God bless them this morning. God bless them with an awareness that you have put their sin somewhere. You put it away by putting it on your son. And he received it willingly and took it upon himself that he might bear the judgment that it deserves. That you might now be a source of blessing and forgiveness and new days. God, I I pray, Lord, that this truth would bear itself out in new days for men in this room. New days to move in ways that they have not been free to walk in before. Or liberation from temptations and sins. Addictive patterns, lustful patterns. God, that you might bring grace into this room with us this morning by the power of your spirit and you might start something. The same way sin starts something, God, would you start something here on Father's Day that goes into the future for men, young men here, not yet fathers, who are fostering something in their life that's going to pop up when they are fathers one day. God, would today be a day of grace for that family, for that wife, for those children. As young people turn and receive wisdom from you. God, I pray for fathers who are here, who Father's Day is a day of struggling regret. Things that they intended to do that didn't get done. Remembrances of choices that were poor choices that had a detrimental impact. Days of guilt. Lord, I pray for those fathers here this morning. I pray that they would lift their eyes from themselves to see God's story in the midst of their story that they would see a God who sends a Nathan, that they would see a God who brings forgiveness where none was being sought. But he graciously intrudes and insists that their life would have a future, that there would be a hope, that there would be new days ahead. God, I pray for fathers here who today is a difficult day But God, would you lift their eyes from their own story and difficulties and struggles and realities to the God who is greater, 
to the God who's telling his story, the God of redemption, the God of grace, who insists that our lives be blessed, blessed, blessed. God, you are our hope today. God, as David learned about himself, he would be unwise to place his hope there. Lord, you are our hope. The men in this room, young men, fathers, today, Lord, we remind ourselves as we seek to manage our fallen world, God, you are our hope and you are our faithful God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful Father's Day.